I think a lot of folk must be away. It must be too wet or too cold. Now you're in Queensland when you wake up in the middle of summer and go, oh, it's a bit chilly today. Lovely this morning to be worshipping with you as the rain falls outside. If you're visiting with us or if you've come in and haven't got a copy of the notes, please put your hand up. Someone will bring you a copy of our notes as we work through today. Our theme for the year has been those words of Jesus as recorded in Mark 1.15, which we've said every Sunday this year. Let's read them together. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. These are the words of Jesus. And this morning, those words, the time is fulfilled, is one of those, yeah, no kidding things. The Jewish people have been waiting an awfully long time for their Messiah. And today we read about Simeon, someone who had been waiting for the coming Messiah. But before we get to Simeon, we need a quick recap of history. We need to go right back to the very beginning. God made the world. He made the Garden of Eden. He made Adam and Eve. He made the first people. He put them in the garden, and then Adam and Eve sinned. And by the time we get to chapter 3 of the Bible, it's everything's gone pear-shaped. Everything has been messed up. But there's a promise there in Genesis chapter 3. As God is speaking to the serpent and cursing him, he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Here in Genesis chapter 3, there is a promise. We have a promise that someone is coming. Someone is coming. He will crush your head, talking to the devil. He will crush the devil's head. The devil will strike his heel. From the third chapter of the Bible, we have a promise that someone is coming. One day, one who will pay back the devil for the trick that he has played on humanity thousands of years before Jesus. We skip ahead in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 22 and a bloke called Abraham comes on the scene. He has all kinds of adventures with God and he makes several covenants with God. He makes deals with God. Abraham is promised descendants as the stars in the sky. Yet is asked to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. Abraham is convinced, as we read there. Isaac says to him, why is the lamb to be sacrificed? And Abraham says to him, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. God himself will provide the sacrifice to save his son. And that is how things turn out. Abraham is also promised that through his descendants will come one who will be a blessing to the entire world. And this is probably about 1,700 years before Jesus. After some time, the descendants of Abraham become slaves in Egypt. They remain there for about 400 years. And God comes up a rescue plan that involves a chap called Moses who leads the Hebrew people to freedom. And they spend 40 years in the wilderness because the people are not ready to trust God entirely. At the end of his long life, Moses calls the people together and promises them this promise. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. He goes on in later verses to say that this one who is coming will have the very words of God in his mouth. When this prophet comes, the people should listen to him. 
This is about 1,250 years before Jesus, give or take. Later still, the descendants of Israel get a king called David who defeats many enemies and establishes a powerful nation. This is the golden age to which the people will always look back. As part of becoming king, David is promised that he will have a descendant who will sit on his throne forever. 2 Samuel chapter 7, God says to him, Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And this is repeated through the Psalms that David writes and through the different prophecies. And the kings that come after David are always pointing back to this promise of God, saying, You've promised there will always be a descendant on your throne. David lives probably about a thousand years before Jesus. So we've seen some promises. There's someone who will crush the head of the serpent that caused the trouble in the Garden of Eden. There'll be someone who'll be a blessing to the entire world and who will provide the sacrifice. There'll be a new prophet like Moses who will have the words of God in his mouth and a king who will sit on the throne of David forever and ever. There's an old hymn that talks about Jesus. Praise him, praise him, prophet and priest and king. And the predictions about this Messiah call him the prophet, the priest and the king. Shortly after King David, things go awry for the kingdom of Israel. They have a civil war. They split into two nations and they fight against each other and against their neighbours for a number of centuries until the northern kingdom is destroyed by the Assyrians and taken into exile. And we have a date for that from the secular histories, 722 years before Jesus. We talked a little bit about that when we talked about Jonah a few weeks ago. 722 BC, the Assyrians come and they also threaten the southern kingdom, the bits around Jerusalem. But a promise is made to those people that through the prophet Isaiah that they will not be destroyed just yet. And in addition, there are more promises of someone who is coming, someone who deliver them from their enemies, a Messiah. And we read part of that promise this morning in Isaiah chapter 9. Beck read that for us. In Isaiah chapter 9 is written, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And there are many other prophecies about this coming Messiah in the book of Isaiah, including the one that begins in chapter 40. He says, comfort, comfort my people. Comfort, comfort my people. Ultimately, Jerusalem will be destroyed by the Babylonians in 597 BC. And the people are taken into exile for 70 years. And during this time, there are other prophets who talk more about this coming Messiah. And after the people come back from exile, still more prophets come and speak. But from that point, the destruction of Jerusalem probably a few centuries earlier, Israel ceases to be an independent nation. 
And so from 597 BC until 1948 AD, there is no such thing as a nation of Israel. There will be a province for other empires and kingdoms, the Babylonians and the Persians, to the Greeks, to the Romans, to the Persians again, to the Ottomans and to the British. But our story takes place in the midst of all of that. The Romans have come in. They've conquered the various Greek kingdoms that have ruled over this part of the world since Alexander the Great rolled through 300 years before. And in 63 BC, the Roman general Pompey conquers Jerusalem. And after that, Israel is a Roman province. And in many ways, the Romans are the worst of the bunch. What have the Romans ever done for us? The Monty Python crew asked. The reality is they were vicious, they were cruel, and they were nasty. They came in and imposed a a fake king over the nation. They imposed tax, harsh taxation. And if anyone anywhere stepped out of line, they would just roll in and massacre whole villages, crucify a whole bunch of people. And into the midst of this brutal empire, oppressing his people, comes Simeon. We don't know anything about him apart from for these few verses in Luke chapter 2. We don't know his job. We don't know his family. Simeon is a very common name at that time. We often think of Simeon as old, but we're not told his age. Maybe we think of him as old because in the next story we're told that the next character we meet in Luke chapter 2 is very old. So maybe we just think he's old because of that. We are told that he was righteous and devout. That is, he treated other people well, he behaved well towards others, and he was careful about his spiritual practices. We're told he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. This is the comfort, comfort my people, that Isaiah spoke about 700 years earlier. That is the coming of the Messiah. Waiting for the consolation of Israel means waiting for the Messiah, the Christ, the one who's been promised since Genesis chapter 3 and Abraham and Moses and David and Isaiah and all the other prophets. It's been called the consolation because it was expected to come after a great distress, a great torment, a great trouble, to which the Jewish people would have replied, we've had nothing but trouble ever since King David died. In times when the nation was oppressed, People of faith looked all the more expectantly for the deliverer who would solve all their problems. We're told further that the Holy Spirit was on him, which seems to mean from the context that the Holy Spirit was on him continually. In the Old Testament, we read of the Holy Spirit coming on certain individuals for a certain amount of time to empower them to do a certain task, but rarely before Pentecost, does the Holy Spirit remain on a person permanently. But Simeon seems to be one of those rare people who walk with God in the common things of life, hearing his voice and responding in faith. And in some way, through this interaction with the Holy Spirit, Simeon has become convinced that he will not die before he sees the Lord's Messiah. Now, how long in advance did he become convinced of this? 
were not told. Was this something he'd been looking forward to expectantly for decades? Or had he just been convinced of this a few weeks or a few months beforehand? Was he on the very verge of death? Or was he still in good health? We don't know. We aren't told. I wonder how you imagine Simeon. Whatever the case, at just the right time, Simeon feels the leading of the Spirit and goes into the temple courts, just as Mary and Joseph arrive with the baby Jesus to do the customary offerings. Because the firstborn child belongs to the Lord and has to be brought back. You can read about that in Exodus chapter 13 and Leviticus chapter 12. At just the right time, the Spirit of God nudges Simeon and says, Go up to the temple. It's time to see the Messiah. And Simeon listens to that nudge, and off he goes. And just at the right time, he bumps into the right family, and the Holy Spirit says, This is the one. Simeon goes up to them and starts his beautiful prayer. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Simeon is delighted that God has kept his promise to Simeon. But more than this, that he has kept his promise to all the people through the ages who have been waiting for this moment. Simeon has seen the salvation of God, the one who will make the sacrifice, the one who will bring rescue and life and freedom. A light for revelation to the Gentiles. As was promised to Abraham long ago, the one who would be a blessing to the whole earth. This is not just good news for the Jewish people of Israel, but for the whole world, for all nations. But he goes on and says, but there will be a special glory, a special blessing for Israel as well. The promises made to them long ago are being kept. Their king has arrived, their great high priest, their Moses, their prophet, their Messiah. Luke records that the child's father and mother marveled at what was said. Mary and Joseph marvel at these words, not because it was new information to them, but because they thought they were travelling incognito. Wise men have already told them, be careful of Herod, he's a scary man. There's no star hanging above them to attract wise men. There's not choirs of angels singing random shepherds to find them in the middle of the night. They're just Mary and Joseph with a baby, probably in the long line of other mums and dads with babies, waiting to do their culture, waiting to do their traditions. God is able to point them out to someone who knows just what to say. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Simeon goes on with further information. This child has a destiny, a disruptive destiny. People will rise and fall because of Jesus, and he will be spoken against so that the hearts of many will be revealed. 
And even today, the hearts of people are revealed when they speak about Jesus or blaspheme his name or mock him or curse him or honour and worship him and live as he calls us to live. How does your conduct reveal your heart regarding Jesus? And then the final word of warning to Mary. As Palaki pointed us out in kids' time, a sword would pierce her own soul too because she will stand and watch her son be killed on a cross. This will not be an easy journey. There will be troubles and difficulties. Being mother to the Messiah will not be a picnic. There will be heartache and fear. And ultimately, we know that Mary will stand there and watch her son be killed on a cross. Are there any questions this morning before we conclude? Is there anything out of this passage that stands out to you or anything you'd like to ask about this morning? I do encourage you if you have questions to send them through and ask. Yes, over here. I don't about the wise men coming and talking to Jesus? Well, uh, so I'm trying to, your comment is, would they have had, what, I guess, what is the question? Mm-hmm. When did the wise men arrive? Was it the same night as the shepherds? Much later, I agree, yes. So I think that, I think the wise, I think, so if you read in Luke, we have this idea in our culture, how many wise men were there, by the way? Anyone who says three is probably wrong. We're not told how many wise men there were. There were at least two. There might have been 50. It just says plural. We have three wise men in the manger scene because there's three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Yes? Does that make sense? So you have one king for every present, so you have three kings. We're not told in the Bible at any point that there are three kings. My money's on two. Anyone else? (laughs) Do what you like. One of them had to carry, because gold is heavy, isn't it? You made one fellow with a bag of gold and the other fellow's got two flasks. Easy. No. So that, that's our Christmas idea is that, yeah, they're there in the manger, which, as we've discussed through the week, wasn't necessarily a manger. But if you want to know what that's about, talk to these guys down the front about mangers and stables. Probably wasn't born in a stable. That's fine. Um, my, my, my understanding of this would be Jesus is born. The shepherds come that same night. There's a couple of days, there's the circumcision of the baby. We read about that in Luke chapter 2 before this, that Jesus is circumcised on the eighth day. At some point in the next few weeks, I think the wise men turn up. Okay? And then they go up to Jerusalem for this thing because Mary is ceremonially unclean because she's given birth to a baby and so is Joseph. And so they have to go up to do the special sacrifice a few weeks after the baby is born. Some point in there... But yes, you're right. The wise men come and say, you better run away. Mm, so somewhere here they run away. That is a good question. And this is where we get into because Luke tells the story of the, the angels and the shepherds. Matthew tells the story of the wise men. And no gospel tells both stories at the same time. So we're in this speculation time. Maybe in their running away they go via Jerusalem to do what's necessary. So that was me speculating about the wise men. Thank you for bringing that up. It's interesting stuff. Ultimately, it doesn't matter, but it's interesting stuff. Any other questions or thoughts this morning? No? Very good.
My question to you this morning is the same question I asked to the children. How are you at waiting? How are you at waiting? Some people are very impatient, always fidgeting and pushing and asking and bothering. Others are much more relaxed and casual and patient. At this time of Advent, we don't just celebrate the coming of Jesus in the incarnation. The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, as we spoke about last week. But we also remember the promise of Jesus that he will return one day. It's a promise that Christians have been holding on to now for almost 2,000 years. Jesus said he would return like a thief in the night. And Paul tells us that the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God. The dead in Christ will rise first and everyone else will be caught up into the clouds to meet him. So Jesus is coming back suddenly without warning and obviously that no one will miss it. There is coming a day when history will come to an end and everyone will see Jesus. Jesus says in Mark 8, 38, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Jesus' return will be obvious. But we've been waiting so long. And every time something goes wrong in the world or there's a crisis politically or economically or a major war or a pandemic, people start with the end times are coming and the end is nice stuff. I'm old enough to remember when Mikhail Gorbachev was the Antichrist and that Jesus was coming back on a Tuesday. Do you remember that? Mikhail Gorbachev, the fellow with the red stuff on his head? And then after him, someone in the European Union was the Antichrist because the number of stars and the flag had some symbolic meaning and some Frenchman was the Antichrist. He's probably Belgian, which is even worse. And then I remember George Bush Sr. said the famous words, New World Order, which everyone said, Aha, he's the Antichrist. Do you remember that? Before they invaded Iraq the first time. And then George Bush Sr. Now, George Bush Jr. was the Antichrist because he was a Freemason. Somehow we missed out on on, um, Bill Clinton being the Antichrist. Maybe he was too incompetent to be the Antichrist. I'm not sure why. But certainly Obama was the Antichrist for a while there and Jesus was coming back any minute now and lots of other people. It goes back a long way. The people are always seeing whatever crisis or whatever's happening in the world and going, ah, that's the Antichrist, that's a sign, it's all going to happen from here, it's all kicking off now. Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, has a chapter that I love in his book where he mocks people for thinking that Napoleon III was the Antichrist and that the Lord's return was imminent in 1863. And some people make a lot of money out of this stuff, predicting this and that and selling books and theories and amassing followers and some even start churches and worse, start cults. The Seventh-day Adventist denomination, I'm not calling them a cult, I'm not going to say that, The Seventh-day Adventist denomination was created out of the great disappointment of 1844 when a preacher convinced hundreds of thousands of people that Jesus would return on October 22, 1844. And then he didn't. It's called the Great Disappointment. The disappointed folks formed the new denomination. They're still going today. Nearly 2,000 years we've been waiting for the end of history. 
and we may continue to wait for a long time to come. The question is, how are you waiting? Simeon waited for the coming of the Messiah. How did he wait? We're told that he was righteous and devout and that the Holy Spirit was on him. How should we wait? How about in the same way as Simeon? How about we be righteous and devout and full of the Holy Spirit while we wait for the Messiah to come? Listening for his voice, living in a way that honours God, being holy in the midst of a sinful and lost world, being obedient to what God, what we hear God saying to us in his word and in our hearts. Do not be mistaken. Jesus will return. He will come like a thief in the night at any moment, in a snap. What will you be doing when he returns? Will you be ready? How will you live until then? Peter writes this in 1 Peter. He says, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. If you don't know what it means to be holy, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, I encourage you to come and speak to me after our meeting today. If you don't know for sure that when Jesus comes at that moment, you'll be ready to face him, come and speak to me today. Do not leave this building today until you are certain that if Jesus came in the next two minutes, you'd be ready to meet him. Our song this morning, our simple song to reflect says this, Though unseen, I love the Saviour. He has brought salvation near. Manifest his pardoning favour. And within me doth appear. Soul and body, soul and body. Then his glorious image bear. We want to be people who look and walk and think and talk like Jesus. We want to be ready for his returning because he is coming very soon. He's been coming very soon for the last 2,000 years, but that doesn't mean we should be more relaxed because we're 2,000 years closer to his return. Though unseen, I love the Saviour. He's brought his salvation near. He comes and lives within us and makes us holy ready to face him. Let's pray. Father God, this morning we thank you for the example of Simeon, a man who was righteous and devout in his age and full of the Holy Spirit. Help us too to be righteous and devout and fill us with your Holy Spirit today. Transform us and make us into your image so we may walk and talk and speak and act like Jesus. Father God, this morning I pray that you would place a passion in our heart for your return, that we would look expectantly for the coming of our Lord Jesus, but we would be ready at a moment's notice to see you face to face. Father God, we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. But until that day, make us useful here below 
Help us to do what you want us to do. Help us to hear your voice. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Help us to trust in your grace and your mercy and your kindness in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.